0: The Peter Schiff Show. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. Hey, everybody. I'm doing another live podcast today following the decision by the Federal Reserve announced earlier today, a couple hours ago, to raise interest rates by 25 basis points. Now, on my last podcast, I speculated that maybe the Fed would not raise interest rates, but I guess it was under too much pressure to try to save face and continue with the pretense that it's able to fight inflation and that it's committed to returning inflation to 2% and so it didn't want to seem as if it had veered from that goal so despite the current financial crisis and again nobody wants to call this a financial crisis they want to call it a banking crisis if they even want to call it a crisis But what was the 2008 financial crisis? It was a banking crisis. It was about banks failing because they had bad loans. This is also a financial crisis because it's starting in the banking sector. I think everybody is reluctant to call a spade a spade here. They don't want to say this is a financial crisis because they don't want to draw any uh, connections or comparisons to what happened in 2008. After all, that's not supposed to happen again, right? Because the government fixed everything so it wouldn't happen again. No, the government broke everything even worse, guaranteeing that not only would it happen again, but that it would be worse. That's what I was saying from the beginning, and I will be proven correct on this, as I am being proven correct on a number of other uh, forecasts that I've made over the years. But I think Powell kind of felt that the Fed had committed itself to a hike and they were going to hike. They did the smallest possible hike, a quarter of a percent. Uh, now we're up to 5%, I guess, the fed funds four and three quarters, 5% is the new range. And this is probably the end of the cycle because what Powell did acknowledge, particularly in q and A Q&A where he went out of his way to make the point that they have relaxed their forward guidance. In fact, and I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself a little bit, but during the Q&A, one of the reporters asked Powell if they had considered a pause. And Powell answered, yes, we did consider it, but we decided to reject that consideration and hike anyway, but he said we wanted to telegraph our concern or whatever word he used through our forward guidance by tweaking the language such that the next rate hike is not as sure, that it kind of reflects all the uncertainty out there. So what Powell did this time is he opened the door to no more rate hikes. And so now that he's opened that door, I think the markets are going to rush in and assume that there are no more hikes. But I think what was a big problem for the market which ended up down, the Dow is down on the low of the day. It closed down over 500 points at 530 points. That's a 1.63% decline. NASDAQ held up a little bit better, down 1.34%. The Russell 2000, though, the weakest of the indexes, down 2.83%. And, you know, look at the Cathie Wood, ARK Innovation, down 4.8%. Even Bitcoin rolled over, you know, intraday, While Powell was speaking, Bitcoin almost got to 29,000. I think it came within spinning distance of that milestone and then rolled over and crashed below 27,000. It got down to 26,700 around there. As I'm recording the podcast, Bitcoin has uh, retaken the 27 handle. It's about 27,300 but all the risk assets sold off late in the day. Uh, A lot of the crypto related stocks got clobbered at the end of the day. And I think a catalyst for that late day sell off. And you know, at one point, I think during the Q&A, the Dow might have been up 300 points. It made a new high while Powell was talking. But I think what Powell said at the end of his press conference, was a catalyst for the sell-off. I mean, maybe it would have happened anyway, but what I think he said that was so problematic is that he was asked a question about rate cuts. Are you thinking about cutting rates? Because the market is already pricing in cuts. If you look at the yield curve, the market is pricing in that not only has the Fed ended its tightening cycle, but that the next easing cycle is imminent. In fact, I think it's already begun because of the premature return to quantitative easing, which I think renders this quarter point rate hike meaningless because I think the quantitative easing is a bigger ease than the rate hike is a tighten. So we have had an ease. But I think that when Powell said that a rate cut is not in their baseline forecast, That was the last thing he said, and then he kind of walked away, took no more questions. So he left everybody with those final words, there is no rate cut in our scenario. And I think that caused problems for the market because the markets are pricing in a rate cut. They are betting on rate cuts to bail everybody out. And so uh, Powell kind of pulled the rug out from under those hopes, and so everything came falling apart. But I think personally that what the Fed did today was just another example of the complete lack of understanding that Powell has for the predicament that the United States is in, the U.S. economy and the Fed. In fact, he was very dismissive, I think, of the whole you know, current banking crisis, financial crisis. He really didn't even mention it In his opening remarks, he talked about it in response to questions, but it wasn't something that he really talked about, which in my mind uh, means that he doesn't think it's very significant. He kind of referred to it as a bump in the road. He acknowledged that the road to 2% inflation was going to have some bumps, basically saying that what we're going through right now with all these bank failures, these are just some of the bumps. That you know, the Fed expected along the way. He never said it was gonna be a smooth ride, that the road to 2% inflation is gonna have a few bumps, and we, you know, we just hit a pothole. That's basically all Powell thinks happened. It's far more significant than that, especially given the gravity of the response that we've already had by the US government and the Federal Reserve in particular. This is anything but a bump in a road. As far as I'm concerned, it's the end of the road and we're never gonna make it to 2% inflation. The road just wasn't long enough to get there. And now inflation is gonna really start to pick up. In fact, just to sidetrack for a minute, just to give you an idea of what's going on, look at the UK inflation numbers. They came out this morning. So this was before uh, we got any of this news from the Fed. And the expectation I think was for the inflation rate in the UK to decline in the year-over-year rate. So they were looking for uh, inflation to pick back up, but instead of getting up 0.5 in February, the number came out at up 1.1. So inflation was twice as bad measured by the CPI as they were expecting, and they had expected the 10.1% year-over-year UK inflation, right, to drop to 9.9. I mean, still a pretty big number, but it wasn't going to have a 10 handle on it. It was going to have a nine. But instead of dropping to 9.9, it rose to 10.4. So inflation in the UK is no longer getting better. It is getting worse when you've got 1.1% surge in one month, and you got this year over year rate of 10.4. Where are interest rates in the UK? 4%. That's where the Bank of England has interest rates. 4% interest rates, 10.4% inflation. Do you think that 4% rate is going to do anything about 10.4% inflation? No. In fact, it will do something. It will contribute to making it worse because how do you respond to? inflation when interest rates are only 4%? Well, you go out and borrow money and spend it because your debt is being wiped out through inflation. You are being encouraged to borrow and spend by the Bank of England. So they are encouraging behavior that will exacerbate the inflation problem that they are pretending to try to solve. Of course, they can't actually solve it because then they'll have an even bigger political problem on their hands right away as everything comes collapsing down, just like, you know, the pension system did. Everything would come collapsing down. You know, a lot of people are trying to say, well, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, they're just a bunch of idiots. You know, this is just a a isolated example where you had a bunch of really dumb people doing these really dumb things. This is not an isolated situation. And the stupidity was at the Federal Reserve. In fact, it's also at Congress. You know, it's laughable that you see congressmen or congresswomen uh, pointing to these execs at Silicon Valley Bank and say, how could you guys have been so dumb? How could you have loaded up on long-term treasuries and mortgages knowing that interest rates were gonna go up? I mean, what kind of idiots are you uh, to do that, right? Well, first of all, they didn't know they were gonna go up this much. I mean, most people were delusional about how high rates were going to go. they They were completely underestimating how bad the inflation problem was and how high rates were going to rise in the pretend fight uh, against inflation. But the reason I'm saying this is uh, ridiculous for the politicians is because they did the same thing. The Treasury Department, and this is not just under uh, Biden, but this is under Trump. This is under, Obama, uh, this was under Bush. It started under Clinton, that's what it started. It was the uh, shortening of the maturity of the national debt. But it was particularly ridiculous when it happened under Obama and then Trump and then finally Biden where you had this gift where you had 0% interest rates and you had long-term interest rates you know, 1%, 2%, you know, 10-year, 30-year Treasuries. You would have thought that if the Treasury was smart and if men and women in Congress were smart, they would have been urging the Treasury to do this. But they should have taken advantage of those record low long-term interest rates to refinance the national debt with 30-year bonds and lock in these really low rates, you know, kind of like a homeowner locking in a fixed 30-year mortgage because they were so cheap. But no, the US government did the opposite of that. They decided to opt for a 90-day arm. They decided to continuously shorten the maturity of the national debt and finance the whole thing with T-bills because they wanted to take advantage of the 25 basis points that they paid to borrow for a year or 90 days They didn't want to pay an extra 100 or 200 basis points to lock in these low rates, and so now the U.S. Treasury has the same problem that Silicon Valley Bank had. It now has all this debt that it took on at 25 basis points that's now maturing, and it has to roll over at 500 basis points. So the U.S. Treasury is even more broke than Silicon Valley, and so is the Fed. The Fed's balance sheet, looks just like Silicon Valley Bank's balance sheet. It's also loaded up with long-term government bonds and long-term mortgages. Everybody made this same idiotic mistake. It doesn't make any sense. It's not fair to try to single out uh, Silicon Valley Bank and say, well, these guys were just woke and politically correct, and so that's the only reason they did this. The whole banking system made the same mistakes. These were just the banks that fell first because they had this huge... Uh, a, a group of uh uninsured accounts they had large depositors that quickly tried to get their money out but all these banks would fail and in fact eventually even the small depositors are going to want to get their money out too because it's not going to matter that their deposits are insured because the insurance doesn't cover inflation and so when people want to avoid inflation They got to get their money out of the bank and do something else with it. The problem is the banks don't have it because they've already committed it to long-term mortgages and government securities. And so you can't get your money out of the bank unless the Fed prints it, which means it's going to have even less value when you finally get your hands on it at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeletemecom slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeletemecom slash gold, code gold. Prior to the Q&A, Powell did go out of its way to state the obvious that we're still a long way away from 2% inflation and that, you know, there's going to be a lot of bumps on the road but the Fed is committed to getting us there. Well, if the Fed really was committed to getting us to 2% inflation, they would not have returned to quantitative easing because quantitative tightening was part of their plan. That was one of the tools in their toolkit that they were using to reduce the rate of inflation because quantitative easing was a tool that they used to create inflation. The problem is they created too much and so now they're using the opposite tool, quantitative tightening, to try to reverse some of the damage that they've already caused, except they've already reversed that. So the quantitative tightening tool is back in the toolkit never to be seen again. In fact, they probably lost it. Maybe, you know, he dropped it down a a drain or something. And so that that tool is gone. It's not even, you know, in their kit anymore. And they're back with the quantitative easing tool. You know, I thought it was really funny, you know, the way Powell tried to worm his way out of this. And I wish the people in that room that asked the questions were smart enough to really follow up, but at least, you know, he got one question about the return to quantitative easing. I I mean, and not enough uh, about, you know, how, you know, how can you do this? How can you be fighting inflation with one hand and then creating it with the other hand? I mean, there was nothing about how, you know, he's working at cross purposes with himself and how inconsistent uh, these policies and his rhetoric is, but Powell denied that the Fed was doing quantitative easing. Even though the balance sheet blew up by 300 billion last week, he said, well, we're not doing quantitative easing. Well, based on what? How is Powell uh, getting away with the lie that there's no QE when the only way that you can grow the balance sheet is through quantitative easing. Well, this was Powell's explanation, and, I, and I'm not making it up. I mean, this is really what, what he said. So Powell said that, well, you know, when we were doing quantitative easing, we had a goal, like right? The purpose of quantitative easing was to lower long-term interest rates. We wanted rates to be lower than where they would be in the free market, which is the first mistake. You don't want that. If the free market wants rates higher, then that's where they need to be, right? The free market is moving rates up for a good reason. The worst thing you could do as a government, as a central bank, is interfere with that, is try to stop what the market is doing because you're going to create a problem if you do that. The market is trying to solve a problem by bringing rates up and the Fed is trying to prevent the problem from being solved by bringing them down. And that's because solving the problem involves some pain. The Fed doesn't want that pain, even if it solves the problem. The Fed would rather make the problem worse if that you know postpones the pain. And, and so that is what they did. But Powell said that that was our goal, right? We were doing QE because we wanted to bring down interest rates. Then he said, what we're doing now, see, we don't really want to bring down interest rates. That's not our goal, right? It's not the purpose of all this money printing and bond buying. Our our purpose is not to bring down interest rates. Therefore, it doesn't qualify as quantitative easing. That's it. That's what the guy actually said. So in other words, if we're doing QE because we want to, well then it's QE, but if we're doing QE because we have to, well then it's not QE. Well, it doesn't matter what your motivation is. Who cares why they're doing QE? All that matters is they're doing it, and if they're doing it, it's QE. Their reasons are immaterial. doesn't matter why you did something. What matters is that you did it, and it's the same thing. What did the Fed do when they were officially doing QE? Well, they created money out of thin air and then they gave that money to the banks and they bought from the banks their mortgages and their uh, uh, mortgage-backed securities and their treasuries. And so the Fed's balance sheet expanded and they bought all this debt and they created new money out of thin air and paid for it. What are they doing now? Doing the same thing. They're going to the banks. The banks are giving them their mortgages and their... Um, treasuries, except the Fed is not paying a fair market value for those securities. The Fed is actually overpaying. The Fed is saying, oh, is the market for that bond 70 cents? Oh, we'll give you a dollar. The banks are actually getting a better deal now than they were back then, because back then the Fed was buying the bonds at the market rate because the bonds were all at premiums, right, because rates were so low. Now, because rates have moved up so much, this quantitative easing is actually worse because they're overpaying for the bonds. They're printing up a dollar to buy 70 cents worth of bonds. So they're even expanding the supply of money even faster. Now, some people say, well, they're not really buying the bonds. It's a swap. Well, it's the same difference. I mean, they're taking bonds and they're giving the banks cash, right? And the money supply expands. The Fed's balance sheet is blowing up, you know, a rose by any other name, although I, I don't want to call this a rose because roses smell nice and this stinks. But the point is, it is the exact same thing. Yet the reporters in that room stand there and allow Powell to get away with his BS and nobody is challenging him. In fact, another ridiculous comment that Powell made, somebody asked him, you know, about these swap programs, I guess, and, and, and what about the risk to the Fed, right? You know, what, what happens if one of these banks, you know, fails or something? And, and Powell said, oh, there's no risk to the Fed at all. This is riskless to the Fed. Well, why is that? Well, because Powell said, it's all guaranteed by the FDIC, so nobody has to worry. Oh, it's all guaranteed by the FDIC? They only have 100 billion. You're talking about $18 trillion worth of deposits The Fed's balance sheet grew by $300 billion in one week. The FDIC only has $100 billion. That's triple their entire reserve. God knows how much the balance sheet grew the following week. We'll find that out on Thursday. But to say that they don't have to worry that the FDIC has got everybody covered, who's got the FDIC covered? The FDIC is broke. Where is the FDIC going to get the money? From the U.S. government? No, the U.S. government is broke. They're running multi-trillion dollar deficits. The only entity that could cover the losses at the FDIC is the Fed. So the Fed is gonna have to bail out the FDIC. So if Powell says, hey, we're not worried about anything because the FDIC is insuring everything, who does he think is insuring the FDIC? The Fed. So the Fed's gonna take money from their right hand and, and just push it in their left pocket or whatever? Is Powell this clueless? He doesn't even understand this dynamic. Now, maybe he's not worried because he's like, well, we'll just print the money. Who cares? Whatever money we lose, we'll just print it up. Yeah, that's inflation. That's the problem. He's saying he's committed to bringing inflation down to 2%, but then he's also basically committed to open-ended money printing because he's going to backstop the FDIC. He's going to backstop all the banks. You know, one of the reporters asked him, Hey, what about all these small banks? Right? Are 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 all their deposits covered? Is the government going to bail out uh, and protect every deposit, even the large ones above 250? And he wouldn't answer the question. He's afraid to answer the question. So what he said was, the banking system is sound. Nobody should worry about the banks. We have the tools to uh, act and protect uh, the depositors if their bank failure is gonna harm the economy. So again, there's the if. Well, what if a small bank fails? Is that gonna harm the economy? I mean, he was almost saying that any bank that fails, regardless of the size, is gonna do some harm to the economy. And therefore, the Fed is gonna need to bail that bank out and make all the depositors whole because we can't allow any harm to the economy. But he didn't wanna come right out and say that. I mean, nobody wants to make the implicit guarantee explicit. You know, that was the same thing with Fannie and Freddie. All the years, this is before the 2008 financial crisis, when people were buying bonds guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie, there was no explicit government guarantee. And everybody knew that, right? It wasn't there. I mean, they, they went out of their way to say that that you buy these bonds that are guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie, Fannie and Freddie are, are independent you know, private companies. Yes, they're government-sponsored enterprises, but we don't stand behind their debt. It's not like buying U.S. Treasuries. So if you bought Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac bonds, there was a higher interest than a comparable interest on a treasury of the same maturity. So why was there extra yield on the Fannie and Freddie Mae paper above the treasury paper? because the treasury bond had the explicit full faith and credit guarantee and Fannie and Freddie bonds did not. So you were still taking a risk. Now maybe what some people were betting was that at the end of the day, the government would never let them fail. And they were right. The government didn't let them fail. And that was a mistake. What the government should have done when Fannie and Freddie went bankrupt is they should have allowed all the people who had enjoyed the extra yield by buying those bonds rather than treasuries, which were safer, but no, they took the risk and they got the higher yield as a result. The government should have let the bonds fail. They should have allowed the people who owned Fannie and Freddie paper to lose their money. Instead, everybody was made whole. The government turned the implicit guarantee into an explicit guarantee. And I think they're doing the same thing or making the same mistake with the banking system. And they want to ensure everybody that this complete house of cards system that the government has created, not the free market, the government created this. The free market would never have a banking system so unsound. You know, I keep hearing everybody saying, we just need more government regulation, right? We just need more regulators to make sure the banks uh, don't screw things up and do bad things. The regulators are a bunch of idiots. You're, you're never going to get sound banking if you leave it up to bureaucrats uh, doing the regulation. In fact, they're very likely to get bought off. They're going to get bribed or something like that. Even if they are smart enough to see a problem, they'll, they'll, they'll take some money under the table to ignore it. The only way that you're going to get a sound financial system is if the free market is in charge, you need real money, right? Gold and silver, real money. You can still use paper as long as it's backed up by real money. That's fine. But you also need to have the depositors worried about the risks that they take when they put their money in a bank because otherwise they're not gonna give a damn. And if the customers couldn't care less what the banks do with their money, why should the banks care? Nobody cares. That is the moral hazard. You can never get away from that. The best way to have capitalism work is with capitalism. So you have a free market, then you have to allow it in banking. Banking is not some special thing that needs to be socialized because the free market can't handle banking. It's too complicated. We need the government to do it. Look, if the government is so smart that they could do banking better than the free market, then what about everything else? Why doesn't the government grow the food? After all, farming has gotta be a lot more simple than banking, so if these government geniuses are so smart that they could bank better than the private sector, then why can't they farm better? Why can't they do everything better? Why don't we just have the U.S. government do everything and then we'll be like Cuba, right? Well, because it doesn't work. When the government grows the food, you starve. There's no food, right, when you put the government in charge of food. Well, when you put them in charge of banking, it's not any better. You get what we've got now, which is a complete house of cards that is in the process of collapsing. And the only reason it's not is because they can prop it up with inflation. But what does that guarantee? That guarantees that the money in the banks Is going to lose value right the government can only guarantee that your money is there that's all they can do yes they have a printing press and they can guarantee that whatever money you have in the bank it'll always be there what they can't guarantee is that that money will buy anything because it may buy nothing and what good is having millions and millions of worthless dollars and you can't buy anything because if you don't think that can happen you are wrong anyway let me get back to uh, Some of the stuff from the Um, Q&A. Someone asked him if he was worried that the rate hikes would actually contribute to making the banking crisis worse. And he basically said no, that that he wasn't worried about that because we have the tools, right, to counteract that, which is, Quantitative easing so even if we force more banks into insolvency and they fail Well, don't worry They're not gonna have to fail because we're just gonna take all their paper off their hands and we're gonna do more of this Not QE right. We're just gonna expand our balance sheet in fact somebody asked them, you know Are you still planning to continue with your quantitative trading program and he said yes, how can he say yes? He's already abandoned it. You can't tighten and ease at the same time Right. I mean, may- maybe if Powell wasn't doing quantitative tightening, maybe the balance sheet would you know would have grown by 350 billion instead of 300 billion. I don't know. But if your balance sheet is growing, then you're not doing quantitative tightening. Right. I don't care. Maybe Powell, it's all about intentions. Well, you know, we're going to count it as quantitative tightening because that's what we really wanted to do. The fact that we did the opposite of what we wanted to do. Well, that's immaterial because all that counts is what we intend. Right. What actually happens? Well, you know, that's that's not our problem. All that matters is what we wanted to happen. And we wanted to do quantitative tightening. So we're going to count it right as quantitative tightening. Um, here was a really um, ridiculous point again that Powell made. Somebody asked him, do you need help from the government with fiscal policy? You're trying to fight inflation. Do you need help from the government? Obviously, this is a Republican reporter because only the Republicans ask questions like this because they're you know, implying that you know, we need to cut spending, right? The Biden administration is spending too much money, like the Trump administration didn't spend too much money either. But it's a good point, and I'm glad that, that somebody made it. So he asked Powell, do you need help? And Powell said, well, we don't give advice to Congress, so I'm not going to say anything. What kind of cop-out is that? And what do you mean you don't give advice? What is your purpose of being there? Why do we even have a chairman of the Federal Reserve if he can't give advice to a bunch of idiots uh, who were elected to serve us in the Senate and the House of Representatives? If he's supposed to be so smart, right? Everybody says, oh, this is one of the greatest economic minds that we have in this country. After all, that's why we elevated him to the position of Fed chairman, right? He's like an economic god, right? Well. Can't you just share some of that wisdom with all the peons in the Congress? I mean, why keep it all to yourself? I mean, they're saying, whoa, we're independent. Independent doesn't mean you can't say what you believe and give advice. In fact, the independence is the other way. It's the Fed that's supposed to be independent from the government, not the other way around. See, he's got it backwards. We don't want the government telling the Fed what to do, but it's okay. If the Fed tells the government what to do, because the Fed is the one that's supposed to be above the political fray. See, the reason you don't want the elected officials trying to pressure the Fed is because they're going to pressure them to create more inflation because it's going to help them get reelected. But the Federal Reserve chairman is not worried about the polls, right? He doesn't have to get elected uh, by a bunch of morons who vote, right? So apparently, the Fed chairman could be above that fray and he can do what's in the interest of the country, which includes educating the congressmen and the senators who are clueless about economics. Because if you're the Fed chairman and you've identified that inflation is a huge problem, it's your biggest problem, and you said that it's causing misery, and if a bunch of congressmen and the president of the United States are saying the same thing, inflation is too high, we have too much inflation, right? We really gotta bring the rate down, right? So you hear all this. You know inflation's a big problem yet you see the government making that problem worse by running bigger budget deficits. Isn't it incumbent on you, as the Fed chairman, to say, hey, you idiots, you're making the inflation problem worse. You're complaining about inflation, and then you're creating inflation, and you're making my job as Fed chairman much harder. What I need out of you is spending cuts. You guys need to cut spending and reduce these deficits Otherwise, I got no chance of bringing inflation down to 2%. That's what he should say. But he's copping out. Why? It's bullshit for him to say he can't give advice to Congress because he did give advice to Congress under COVID. He advised Congress to run bigger deficits, to spend more money, and said, don't worry, I got you covered. I'll print whatever you need. You know, so he was willing to tell Congress what to do when he was telling them what they wanted to hear, which was spend more money and you got the green light. They always want to spend money, right? But when it came time to telling Congress what they have to hear, which is stop spending money, you spent too much. That's why we got inflation. So you got to rein this in. You got to cut this spending. Now all of a sudden, no, no, I can't give them any advice. I got to be independent. Ridiculous. In fact, what does he think these press conferences are about? Or in particular, when he has these, Uh, Humphrey Hawkins' testimonies, he goes up to Capitol Hill, he sits there in front of the House and the Senate, and they talk to him, and he talks to them. He's there to give them advice, to tell them if they're doing stuff that's wrong, that's, that's, that's causing a problem. He's not there just to be a rubber stamp and just not point this out. This is absurd. He just does not want to criticize anything the government does. In which case what the hell is the purpose of having an independent central bank if they won't criticize the government? That like that shows you they're not really independent. If they're afraid to be critical, they're not independent. They are basically kowtowing to the government, the Biden administration, and they refuse to utter one critical word about that uh, administration. In fact, What Powell said about fiscal policy is like, hey, we just take whatever we get. You know, we take whatever the fiscal policy is. We don't want to put any input into it, right? We're just going to swing at any pitch. Like, we don't care, you know, it's like low and outside, and we're just going to keep on swinging. Even though, you know, we're going to miss the ball because we can't even reach it, we don't care. We're not going to tell Biden, hey, you know, a little to the left, a little higher, you know, you're way off the plate, right? No, 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 we're just going to swing at whatever, you know, crazy ball, the president throws our way, right? That is ridiculous. Why would you do that if you know you're going to get a wild pitch? I mean, hey, come on, you know, we're trying to fight inflation here. A little help. That's what he should be saying. This is all BS. And none of these reporters said anything about it. I mean, partially because they don't even understand economics or finance and, you know, they're financial reporters. So if they're so clueless, imagine everybody else. You know, I was listening to some guy. I don't even remember his name on CNBC today and he was talking about what's happening in the banking sector. And he said, look, this is not anything like 2008. Now, we don't have anywhere near the problems that we had that were so obvious in 2008, right? I'm listening to this guy talking about these obvious problems that we had in, in 2008. I can tell you firsthand, they were obvious to me and maybe a handful of other people, But they weren't obvious to anybody else. They certainly weren't obvious to anybody at the Federal Reserve. They weren't obvious to any of these mainstream economists on Wall Street or in academia. I mean, sure, years later, with the benefit of hindsight, oh yeah, they were obvious, but in real time, no, no, they were not obvious. Because I was trying to point them out, right? I was pointing out the obvious to so many people. And what did these people say? They laughed. They made fun of me. This is crazy. There's no way, right? It was obvious, but they didn't see it. The same thing is happening now. All the stuff that everybody is in denial about right now, believe me, in five years, those same people are going to be talking about all these obvious problems that we had in 2023. But again, they're not obvious in 2023, just like the 2008 problems weren't obvious until years later. Now, they were obvious to the people who actually understand economics. But for the, to the vast majority of people, including everybody at the Federal Reserve, who don't understand economics, they weren't obvious. Now, I don't even remember what this guy's name was, so I, don't, I can't say for sure what he was saying in 2008. But most likely, these obvious problems weren't obvious to this guy either because if they were, he would be able to recognize the same problems right now. But he doesn't. And so he's going to have to wait until everything collapses, and then he'll just somehow have selective memory. Oh yeah, those problems were really obvious. They were not. Um, yeah, I think those are that's basically the the notes that I took down uh, of the podcast. But my overall impression of it was Powell was greatly minimizing the gravity of the current situation similar to the f- way the Federal Reserve initially minimized what was going on in subprime, trying to you know paint a rosy picture, trying to reassure everybody that there is nothing to worry about. But I can assure everybody that there is a lot to worry about, that the Fed is just as correct today as they were in 2007, early 2008 with respect to their willingness to dismiss the obvious signs of a major crisis. And in fact, you didn't even have to wait for the signs. It was obvious because of the Fed's monetary policy. You can't keep interest rates at zero for more than 10 years and not expect to have created an enormous problem. And to Expect that that problem is limited to the banks is laughable because the entire economy was impacted by artificially low interest rates. Let's say over the last 10 years, interest rates should have averaged, I don't know, say 7%. I don't know what they should have averaged. We'll never know. But we do know that what they would have averaged without the government was significantly above zero. But whatever the rate should have been, it was much, much lower than that. And so we had 10 years of economic mistakes. And obviously, the biggest mistake that everybody made, you know, from the average guy with, with, with a car loan, right, to the US government with its national debt. And of course, in between, it's going to be like Silicon Valley Bank and everybody else. But everybody took on too much debt. US corporations. Where did all that money come from to finance all those share buybacks? Because it didn't come from earnings, came from debt. Why? Because the debt was so cheap. In fact, that was one of the things that everyone was saying. The money is so cheap, let's borrow it. The government was saying that. Now's the time to borrow because it's so cheap. Yeah, but they weren't locking in those low rates. They were leaving themselves vulnerable. And I used to say something like, well, if heroin was free, do you use it? Just because it's free? No, but what about the long-term consequences? So they didn't care. No, it's free heroin, let's do it all. You know, all this debt was taken on because of how low rates were below where they should have been, right? Everybody was getting a gift from the Federal Reserve and nobody wanted to deny that gift. Everybody accepted it with open arms. And we, we were doing this for 10 years and now, The Fed is, okay, we gotta put interest rates back up to normal. Well, but nobody has a normal amount of debt. So when you have an abnormal amount of debt and you try to layer a normal interest rate on top of that, it doesn't work, right? So everything has to implode. Asset prices have to collapse because they were bid up based on cheap money. Debts have to go into default because the only reason the borrowers could pay was because the rates were so low. So everything that was built on this phony foundation has to collapse when the foundation is no longer there. So this is obvious and this is the beginning of the real crash that I've been talking about since QE. In fact, I had to write a book that I, I think the initial version of that book came out in 2013, The Real Crash, because I had to remind everybody that what happened in 2008 wasn't the real crash. It was just a prelude to the real crash. The real crash is the one that's coming. That even happened yet. It's, it's starting now, finally, after all these years. But again, as I've been saying, because we kicked the can down the road for as long as we did, the problems got much worse. And I think the market is starting to figure it out. The 550-point sell-off in the Dow, closing on the low of the day is a sign, gold. $30 rally. Gold's been very volatile this week, but you know what? It's close to $2,000 an ounce. It got above 2000. I think it was Sunday night, Monday morning. It got to like 2010. As I'm recording this podcast, it's back above 1970. Gold is going to take off. I mean, you know, you're know, you pressing your luck if you're waiting to buy. Uh, you just got to buy. I think the reason that it hasn't totally taken off yet is some of the people that understand what this means are buying gold, but there's very few of us because the vast majority are still clueless. So what happens is a few smart people rushed to buy some gold over the weekend and, you know, drove the price up above 2000. But then a bunch of idiots saw the price above 2000 and said, oh, let's sell gold. Look, it's way above 2000, right? Because these idiots don't understand what's actually going to happen. So, you know, The good thing about this crisis and you know, not that there's many good things, but one of the good things is that the idiots are gonna lose a lot of money. And the smart people are gonna make money. Just that there's not that many smart people, there's just mostly a bunch of idiots. And so a lot of people are gonna lose money and then a small group of people are gonna make money. And, And I think that small group of people will include my audience and the people who are following my advice. So we got a big rise in gold today. We got a sell off in the dollar. The dollar did not rally uh on the idea that the fed's not going to cut rates the dollar sold off now we did have a rally in the long end of the bond market again because the market is betting that the fed is going to do the full-on pivot i think again they've opened the door and now the market's going to make sure they push the fed inside that door and that the very next thing the fed is going to do is going to cut rates. It's already gone back to quantitative easing. So quantitative tightening, again, is already a thing of the past. We're already back to quantitative easing. And I always said that we would do QE or go back to QE before the rate cuts. So I think the Fed is going to start cutting rates. I don't think they're going to be able to get down to zero again. I mean, they, they're they probably going to want to, but inflation is going to be so high that they're going to start cutting rates and then they might have to start raising rates, but that's going to do no good because they're going to be so much further behind the curve by the time they try to pivot again, uh, that we're just going to have a full blown currency crisis on our hands. But before that happens, call up SHIFT Gold, get your gold and silver, go to Europac uh, uh, Asset Management, europac.com, talk to my advisors, get your portfolio prepared for what's going to happen, because it's not going to look like 2008 where foreign stocks went down because the dollar went up, the dollar should come crashing down, as the market is already showing you, and you need to take refuge in these foreign assets, not only to escape inflation, but to escape a weak dollar, and you wanna focus on the exact type of stocks that we own at Euro Pacific Asset Management because these are the stocks that I have specifically put into the portfolios because they are better positioned to weather this storm. The one thing you can't own is paper. When the US government, when the president, When the Federal Reserve Chairman tells you not to worry, your money is safe at the bank, what's the first thing you do? You better start worrying because none of your money is safe at any bank. So before it loses its value, withdraw it and do something responsible for it. And again, I'm gonna do another live Q&A immediately following uh, this live podcast on Locals again, Shift Premium. So if you didn't sign up over the last few days and you wanna take part in the follow up to this, in the QA, that you got to join me on locals, go to shift radio slash premium and sign up. Again, it's just five bucks a, a month. And you know, pretty soon five bucks will be like one buck uh, because of massive inflation. So you might as well sign up. There's a lot of good content to follow. So I'll see you there. Bye for now.